welcome back to the Don't Mom Alone podcast. I'm your host, Heather McFadden, and this is the place where I get to walk alongside you and connect you with people and resources so you know that you don't mom alone. And in this episode number 436, we are once again celebrating 10 years of the podcast. This is our third compilation episode, and this time I'm answering the question that people often ask, which episodes were the most memorable? Now, sometimes they'll say, who is your favorite guest? And that is too hard to pick. But often I would answer that question by mentioning the people who've been on the show who are no longer with us, who have passed on to heaven. And it feels like a holy moment that I was able to record with them. Those guests include Vicki Kraft. If you've never listened to my conversations with her, she is a mentor from my church. She's written many books on the Titus II concept of women mentoring women. And she gave us the phrase, there's no grace for your imagination. Another guest that came on the show that is very memorable is Jen Klaus. I had her in one of our summer of mentorships. I replayed her episode. It was episode 100, which is easy to remember. But she was walking through cancer and all of her words about heaven and even the get-tos of motherhood that she was missing out on because of her diagnosis was just super powerful. Kim Fredrickson, she had a chronic respiratory disorder and she spoke on self-compassion. That was so good. Go listen to those episodes. Both Jen and Kim, I re-released and Vicky as summer of mentorship episodes because they were so powerful. And then, of course, my conversation with my dad. It just is even more memorable that I have his voice recorded and just some of his thoughts available to me that I can listen to at any time. Okay. But our first episode that we are going to share clips of in this episode of Most Memorable is one of five that I've picked that had a big impact on my parenting. That if I had to think, man, out of all these hundreds of conversations, Which ones do I go back to? Which ones were instrumental in a pivot in my thinking or my understanding? And I would say Jeannie Cunyon and her thoughts on walking alongside our kids in grace and understanding what that really means to meet them at the foot of the cross. And so this episode is number 91. It is called Anchoring Our Kids in the Lovability of Christ. And we recorded it in 2015. Here we go. You know, essentially, how do we weave the unconditional love of God into the way that we establish our authority, require obedience, train and discipline our kids? Mm. Uh, And that's really what the topic was. I think so often when I speak, I get the question of how do we balance grace and discipline as, um, as if they're two different things and, or that they can't exist together, that you either have to choose discipline or choose grace. Yeah. And so I love talking about actually how we can weave those together, how grace can actually be woven into discipline that they can and should coexist together. And so I was talking about that. And at the end of the session, a wonderful woman who is a youth pastor came up to me and she said, you know, I really appreciated what you said about the importance of our kids understanding what makes them lovable. And as parents, how we can reflect God's love to them. And she said that the one of the biggest struggles that she sees in kids in her ministry is that they equate how lovable they are 
with how good or bad their behavior is. Mm. And so they feel like when their behavior is good or their obedience is good, or even their, um, their performance in school or on the field is good, that their parents love and accept them more. Mm. And when it's not good, that their parents love and accept them less. And, and as we all know, as much as we don't often like it, we know that we serve as a template for how our children understand God and God's love in so many ways. Yeah. And so because of that, our children come to believe that God is happier with them on the days that they're following him and obeying him. And God is angrier with them or frowning upon them when they're not rather than, you know, understanding Christ's perfection covering them. And so, and essentially the, the challenge that I propose to every parent, and as I said in the article, it's one that I engage in often is to have a hard, it can be a scary conversation, right? Um, Or a hard conversation about and ask our children, what do you think makes you lovable? And do you think that I love you more when you're good? Or do I make you feel like I love you less when you're not? And and just challenging every parent to do that. And you know, obviously, Heather, you know my story, but having come from more of a very perfectionist parenting model when I first became a parent yeah. and recognizing the pressure I put on myself and therefore the extraordinary pressure I'd put on my kids um, to have good behavior, I know that my sinful nature can quickly creep back there. And Mm -hmm. so even as a mom, I have to check in with my kids, uh, especially my oldest one and say, Hey, I just want to, I just want to, you know, give you an opportunity. I feel like maybe lately I've been hard on myself. I've been hard on you. And I just, you know, are you feeling that pressure? Is there anything you want to share with mommy? I just want to make sure that you understand that though my actions might not perfectly reflect this, Mm. that I am crazy about you and I love you and your obedience and disobedience has no bearing on that love for you. Grace is not God looking at our sin and excusing it or approving of it. It's not the absence of requiring obedience, right? I mean, grace is God looking at our sin and the gravity and the magnitude of it, the more honest I get with myself, And then out of his great love, choosing to give us Jesus to atone for it. So when I remember that in a situation with my kids, the question is then, how can I weave that kind of radical, unconditional love into the way I am requiring obedience from them in this moment? And, or, you know, or I'm going to discipline in this moment because they didn't listen. And so I'm with you. I mean, I can quickly go to that. I've said a hundred times, or how could you not listen? Or why is listening? So, and I can use that shaming voice and that angry face and I can get immediate results and I can get the behavior I want, but ultimately what am I accomplishing? Right. Yeah. And so it's constantly remembering uh, God's love for me and the way he guides me in authority and obedience and trying to be a broken vessel. And I've really come to cling to that word broken part of it is a broken vessel of God's love for them and the way I lead them. And so how do we at a young age instill in them that your lovability is completely anchored in the fact that God is crazy about you? that he delights in you, that he takes pleasure in you because of the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, covering you. And there is absolutely nothing that you can do to change that. Jesus makes you lovable, not your Instagram likes, not your grades, not your performance on the field, not your behavior and your obedience to me. But the fact that Jesus Christ loved you enough to lay down his life for you and to rescue you and to reunite you with God. And And, and it sounds like so abstract. 
so abstract. And But the tangible part is how we treat them. Yes, it plays out in how we treat them. And when we fail, which we all do, it's just a matter of whether we're being honest about it. Yeah. Um, being willing to say, me too. I need Jesus too. I need grace too. I daily am aware of my sinful nature and the fact that I am God's beloved daughter, but I also still live in the flesh and wrestle with the things of this world. And so me too. And it transforms our relationship with them. I mean, I think we talked about this last time, but you know, the most beautiful thing in me coming on a daily basis to discover God's grace for me is that it allows me to come alongside my kids rather than down on them in their own sin and failure and weakness. Mm. And it radically changes our relationship with them, whether we come down on them or we come alongside them. And that's not to say that we should, we're not, you know, we're dismissing authority. No, we can still have authority and come alongside our children to the cross in need of, of grace and, and a savior. And Jeannie has written several books since she wrote Parenting the Wholehearted Child. She's written Mom Set Free. She's written about parenting and the power of the Holy Spirit. All of her work is fantastic. She has five boys and she knows what she's talking about. So go check her out. Next up, I think the other episode that often comes to mind and was super impactful in my parenting were my conversations with Mary Flo Ridley and that was the beginning. And then she was joined her team at Birds and Bees. She added Megan Michelson. And we've done several episodes on equipping parents to be the experts when it comes to having the birds and bees talk with your kids. And this can be controversial. I get it. But I think more than ever, the way our culture has gone, even since 2014, when I first recorded my interview with Mary Flo that we desire to integrate our values and our thoughts and our statements about all things related to gender and sexuality to our kids first. And Mary Flo so graciously gives us words, gives us phrases, gives us a way of inviting conversations with our kids on these topics. And I remember learning from her and it just made it so much easier to start with my boys answering the questions they asked and not feel so overwhelmed and intimidated. So here are some clips from my conversation with Mary Flo. We actually recorded it earlier in my having the podcast, but then re-released it in 2016. So this is the encore version of When to Have the Talk with Mary Flo Ridley. The first step I think is the most critical step, and that is to formulate a message that you want your children to have about sex. What is the image you hope your children carry forward in their life of what sex is really all about? And so I ask parents to really go through a thoughtful two-week process before they actually come up with the words that they would say are their, the words that describe their message. For an example, uh, the message for our family that Dave and I came up with as we were talking about it, writing things down, trying to come to a conclusion of really what's the uh, what's the main thing we hope our children learn about sex if they grow up in our family. And to answer that question, we went through kind of a process. And then we realized we, we wanted them to understand the beauty that God designed this to be, and yet the boundaries that he set forth to mm. protect that beauty and also to be for our good and, and for his, the purpose of sex could be protected, the purposes. 
And what were the purposes? We, and, and, you know, as we looked at his word, it was for oneness and for fruitfulness. So those were the things that needed to be protected within marriage. The message we hoped they would receive as a result of conversations, and also not just words, but actions and attitudes and everything, was that sex was a gift from God for marriage. That was kind of our overarching idea. And from that idea, we could draw vocabulary, we could draw purposeful conversations. We, we had a goal. And that made all the difference because I wasn't just reacting to their questions. I had a purpose for each conversation. And, and I will tell you just from the outset, no one does this perfectly. And my children would tell you that we did not do it perfectly. In my mind, the economy was such that I was willing to trade. I was willing to say, yes, I will endure this uncomfortable moment and many like it so that later on we can have a family in which this can be discussed. Well, and I love your line that you kind of gave me when, when a question comes up, you know, you've got your smile on your face, maybe your blotches on your neck. But what are the <laughs> words, what are the words you, that you would say with your kids? We would always say, that is such a great question. I'm so glad you asked me that. Then the next step is to really consider your vocabulary. And um, are you going to use the wingy-wangy words? Are you going to use um, medical vocabulary? Are you just going to generalize it and call them privates and not be specific to gender? If you have a baby coming, you can talk about when the baby's born, God will have decided if this is going to be a girl or a boy. And we'll know as soon as the baby is born. How do you think we'll know? You can even ask your children questions. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I remember my son said, well, if it's a girl, it'll have a bow. You know, (laughs) good guess. But I said, actually, believe it or not, when the baby's born, the baby is born naked with no clothes on. So how do you think we'll know? The timing. Mm-hmm. When, when is, when is the <laughs> right time to have the sex talk? And your answer is? <laughs> My answer is, that's a very tricky question. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you've, if you've got your message and you've started using respectful vocabulary and you've ex- actually, I think it's important that you have some preliminary conversations In other words, if a child says, mommy, how did that baby get in there? You might want to back it up just a little bit and say, you know what? You need to have a little more information before I answer that question. Because you may want to introduce the idea of birth and then to have the um, understanding of seeds and eggs that are in all living things. I'm setting up the ideal because sometimes the ideal doesn't happen. Well, and you've pointed out before that kids often ask how the baby's going to get out before they ask how it got in, right? That is the typical developmental curiosity. The curiosity is usually children are little problem solvers and they'll say, mommy, how's that baby getting out of you? And I would, I would just jump all over that. Oh, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. And then just talk about how that baby, that by God's design, there's a special place where the baby's growing. It's not in my tummy. That's where my food goes. And boys have tummies, but boys don't have uteruses. And a uterus is a special place where a baby grows inside the mommy, grows for about nine months. After nine months, it's time to leave. And so the muscles around the uterus push the baby out of the uterus, through the birth canal, and out a special opening between the mother's legs called the vagina. 
the baby's born, but still is connected to the mom by something called the umbilical cord. So the doctor snips that off. And now we have a new baby in the family. And so you have just at that moment become the expert to them. You have dazzled them with more information, but not with sensual information. You have just explained electricity to them, or you have just explained, you know, something. Mechanics. Uh, yeah. Just the, like just yeah, the, mechanics. the mechanics of it. This is where it is right now. And this is how it will come out. And, so, and, and you would suggest like just answering the question they asked, right? They didn't ask for a how-to or, you know, they just asked how the baby going to get out and you answered that. Yes. But yeah. as a mom, I would encourage you to dazzle them with that story. In other words, you could say, well, I go to the hospital and the doctor takes it out. And that's, that's answering their question to, to your degree of comfort. You have not told them a lie, but you have not, you've missed an opportunity to really draw them in to your expertise and start to draw the picture for them that by, and I used to love to start the, the conversation with these three words by God's design, because it just puts it all at his feet. I didn't invent this. I didn't make the uterus. I didn't, you know, this is his, the beauty of his design is that this is how man and woman reproduce. And if there's a C-section situation, yeah. you could just say, and sometimes, that's what I you know. Actually, yeah. I encourage parents to tell both stories to say now, you know, after you tell about a vaginal birth, then to say, well, and you know, sometimes the baby's in the uterus and is ready to leave and those muscles start working, but the baby will wiggle and is not in a good position to go through the birth canal. And so the doctor will know that and he'll use his instruments to make an opening, a little slit close to where the baby is, and he'll lift the baby out. And notice I didn't say he will take a great big knife and cut your mother open. <laughs> <laughs> but using his instruments, he'll make an opening and lift the baby out. And that's called a cesarean section. And that's, you know, I tell parents, that's how your cousin was born or, you know, or maybe, and that's how you were born, but your brother was born the way I described. First of all, I, I think the more they know about birth, the more they end up coming back to you with other questions. If parents will not miss the opportunity they can preempt the culture. It's almost, it's not exactly, and it's not 100%, but it's almost like a vaccine. Like if we give them a little bit of information, if we let them know the mechanics and our message, you know, what are our values about this? What does God have to say about this? We can really fill their minds with the right information so that when that damaging or degrading or confusing message comes in from the culture at all points <laughs> that, you know, every time they're outside practically, then we've got a head start on it. It's like you, you I think you use the illustration of the sponge, right? Like that right. we either fill it up or we let culture fill it up. But once it's full, there's no more space. <laughs> Right. And that, you know, if we send our children out into the world with a dry sponge with nothing in it, and if that sponge is, if we label that curiosity about sexual things, which is not a bad thing, it's an innate curiosity, then if we leave that page blank or we leave that sponge dry, then we are just inviting the culture to fill it up. And I don't think that's the picture we want our children to have about sex. Your six-year-olds are not going to school with other six-year-olds. They are going to school with the oldest sibling of anyone in that room. So yeah. where, where your firstborn six-year-old has a certain amount of knowledge, basically nothing in his world goes beyond 
you know, uh, the horizon of a six-year-old. But he is sitting next to someone who's the youngest of four, who has a 16-year-old brother, and who passed the six-year-old horizon long ago because of all the things that are happening in his world that aren't necessarily bad, but are so much beyond what your child knows. It was so hard for me to to pick clips from that episode because I wanted to put the whole thing in there. Um, so this is just like a tip of the iceberg of Mary Flo and Megan Michelson's work at Birds and Bees. I will tell you that last little clip of uh, your family is the age of your oldest child and that awareness that while you may be doing the work of protecting and guarding your oldest child when they are in a classroom or even in a church. I mean, if you're like, oh, I homeschool, like if you're ever anywhere out in public, your child is going to interact with other kids who may have older siblings. And if you are the one who's parenting the younger kid with older siblings, I don't want you to feel guilt or shame. I have been that parent as well. This is just like an awareness factor that when she said it, I couldn't think any other way. So it was memorable. Uh, Go check out all the episodes I've done with them in the show notes. We're going to take a second and thank one of our sponsors. Moms, you know how busy life is. And we spend more time and energy on making sure our kids look cute. Maybe you have some family pictures coming up and you are looking for all these coordinating outfits. And you put all the energy into the kids and then finally you're like, wait, I am the center of the show. What am I going to wear? Well, One tool that could help you if you are someone who doesn't like shopping for yourself or maybe you just need help is using Stitch Fix. What's great about Stitch Fix is they have stylists. They have a quiz. You can look at different options and say, I like that. I don't like that. For me, because I've had my colors done and because I've had my style done, I may know those things, but they're in the Stitch Fix system. And so when I purchase something, they then tell me this would go with what you already own. You already own this sweater. So these would be some great jeans or pants, or you have this dress. Here are some great shoes that would go with it. It's awesome. And it's a great way to get some new styles and some new brands. Think of Stitch Fix as your style partner. Like I've told you before, they almost create a little store for me so I can go in there and they already have my sizes in there and they carry from size extra small to 3XL. They'll find your perfect fit. You can try everything on at home. So if you order a fix on your timeline, if you want a regular fix, that's great. If you want it just as a refresh as needed, they can do that. You get everything. You try it at home. You keep what you like. You send back the rest. It is fall. It is finally fall in Dallas. And I am wearing my Veja Campo leather sneakers that I love. They're white. They have a little pop of pink. And I knew that I could get exactly the ones I wanted by going to Stitch Fix. Thanks, Stitch Fix. They just get me and they're going to get you too. Try today at stitchfix.com slash DMA and you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash DMA, stitchfix.com slash DMA. Okay, the next episode that holds in my mind as most memorable is my conversation with Kat Armstrong in 2017. She came on and she talked about motherhood, career, and identity. And this little clip that I'm going to share was transformational. In in fact, it impacted my thinking when I was came across the humility quote on fully occupying your God-given space. This concept of calling versus identity and the clarity she brought was super, super helpful. 
So here is that quote from episode 171 with Kat Armstrong. I think something else I would build into that, something I talk a lot about is the difference between calling and assignment. And I'm, I'm like, I cannot get off this soapbox. <laughs> that means that it's from the Lord. Let's do it. Okay. Calling versus assignment. Yeah. So calling, I think as a society um, and certainly the church, we've done that word a disservice. Mm. We have made calling our identity. And then we've also made, okay, so calling becomes what I should do as a career. Mm-hmm. It also means changing the world. If you're a Christian, it also means aligning with God's will. Mm. So you show me a woman that feels stressed out and overwhelmed. Uh, Apparently Kate's book says 68% of women feel that way, no matter what they do during the day. You show me one of those stressed out women. And I can tell you a lot of it goes back to their perception that calling is about finding the perfect career for them, whether that's a stay at home mom, part-time working mom, or corporate America mom, whatever. Calling is about career. It's about our identity. It's about aligning with God's will and changing the world. So, yeah, wow, pressure. Yeah, too much pressure. And here's what the scriptures have to say about that. The Apostle Paul, he was so intentional that one, two, three, four, four of his epistles start with the sentences that have the word calling in it, and not a single one of those verses have anything to do with career aligning with God's will or like navigating these complexities. The the word calling in the New Testament, according to the Apostle Paul, is always about belonging to Jesus, being in fellowship with Jesus, being saved by Jesus, that our calling to salvation is holy and undeniable and irrevocable. He talks about the word calling being something the spirit has to enlighten us to because it's about salvation. And so I think it'd be helpful if we made a shift from that word calling, like, what's your calling? What's your calling to my calling is fulfilled in salvation. Like Mm -hmm. I'm called to Jesus. I am for Jesus. This is the like complete fulfillment of who I am, my identity, my career, no matter what it looks like, will always be about I'm a Christ follower. And I know that seems kind of trite, but it really, and here's yeah. what I think we should shift to is away from this, the pressure of calling, making it into career or what we do during the day. And instead talk about our assignment. Mm-hmm. Cause right now I'm on an assignment to be a four-year-old's mom, a pastor's wife, and to work full-time for a nonprofit that I started. And at any moment, I'm ready for God to say one of those assignments that they have to change, that my role in those assignments. So, and I can't, you know, people hear me say that they're like, are you leaving polished? No, (laughs) I'm not planning on it, but I'm open to the fact that I'm on an assignment with polished right now to be the executive director and to lead. And that won't be the only assignment I have in life. I don't know what the next assignment will be. So I'm going to focus on fulfilling this assignment for a lot, as long as God has me here. And I fangirled out over Jill Briscoe's. Oh my goodness. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, I mean, between your two feet, that's where it is. That's where your calling is. Your calling is to go and make disciples. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Between your two feet, like where you are planted. This is your, this is your assignment. You don't have to go out and find it or create it. If you're a mom who's sorting through your career identity, definitely check out that episode. And also Kat came back on 
to talk about Women Can Be All In For Jesus, episode 253. She has lots of different books. She just released, I think, six different Bible studies. Check those out. Next up in my most memorable conversations is one I had with my friend Carissa Fry. Now, she's come on three different times, but this conversation was on the window of tolerance. It was episode 260, and it was really transformational in how I interacted with one of my boys who has some sensory regulation issues. And just in general, I felt like it was really helpful information for us as parents to understand our neurological wiring and when we get out of the window and I can't see the world differently after having had this conversation. So it's definitely memorable. All right, let's get right to it. Here we go. Once I started learning about our nervous system and how regulation works, I was so amazed as a Christian how much what I was learning was also really reflected in scripture. And it was such a helpful tool as a parent and also as a counselor, as I was working with clients to just create a lot of self-awareness and self-awareness is so important for us as parents and just as people living our lives. Because once we're self-aware and we're paying attention to our feelings and um, what's going on in our life, we are so much more empowered to make good, healthy choices and live the lives that God has designed and called us to live. Looking at the window of tolerance, so just kind of imagine a window, and this is the part of our nervous system that pulls us into social engagement and connection. This is where we find an optimal amount of energy, where we can communicate well, where we feel connected and safe. This is where our thinking brain, sometimes you'll hear that, that term thinking brain, this is where our thinking brain is engaged. We can consider consequences. We have access to logic, to reason. We can problem solve. We can be curious. And this is also when we're in the window of tolerance, this is when we have an awareness of ourselves, of time, space, of others. So we're attuning in relationships with people. And this is also where we can feel our feelings but not in an extreme way that feels out of control. So you can be in the window and you can feel sad and you can cry. You can feel in the window and be mad. We call it the window of tolerance because this is where you learn how to tolerate life. And so in the window, imagine a baby when an infant is born, their window is very small. They don't tolerate much. So when they get wet, they leave the window. When they get tired, they leave the window. When they get hungry, they leave the window. And so when you imagine the window, now imagine leaving the window up. So leaving the window up is the part of our nervous system that pulls us into fight or flight. And that's called hyperarousal. So we're going into this fight or flight mode. So when a baby gets wet or tired or hungry and they just start screaming their little heads off, it's because they're communicating, I have a need and it's not being met and I'm feeling really terrible inside of my body. And so when we're in this place of fight or flight, our bodies do not feel good. We have too much energy and it can look like rage. It can look like panic attacks. It can look like a lot of fear. When we're in this place in our nervous system, we might be yelling, we're defensive. We can be just kind of pacing. We might wanna just run away and one of the really important things to realize is our thinking brain is off in this part of our nervous system. We are no longer registering consequences. And so 
it's almost this feeling of like when you're talking to a teenager and you're saying, hey, if you do this, you're grounded. And they say, I don't even care. And it's like, okay, if you do it, you're grounded for two weeks. And they say, I don't even care. And they're just in this place of no matter what you're telling them, the consequences, it is not registering because they're in this fight or flight place. Hmm. And so I love this verse in Ephesians that says, parents, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that is fits so beautifully. It's like, why do we not want to provoke our children to anger? Because when we provoke our children to anger, their thinking brains aren't on. They can't receive instruction. They can't be disciplined. And so that's why it's so important to pay attention to where our children are. If they go into this hyperarousal, they don't have access to their thinking brain. And we're wasting a lot of time and energy trying to logic and reason with them in that place. So when we're leaving the window downward and we're going into this hypoarousal place, that's hypo, a place of... You're saying hypo. hypo yeah. Yes, hypo. Um, that is the place we go and it's kind of like an immobilized place. So that's when we have like, instead of in hyper flight where we have too much energy, now we have like no energy. This is just exhausted, tired. We feel like we have maybe no feelings or feel numb. Or we might, if you're talking to someone who's in hypo, they're just really like flat feelings. So it's just like very monotone. You might get a blank checked out look from your kiddo if they're like that, like kind of trancing. There's like really long pauses when they're speaking or they might just feel far away. Like you're like, you almost want to tap on them and be like, are you with me? Come on, come back to the room, be with me. Um, because they're going into this shutdown place. So just imagine, like, I think it's so easy to see with infants, like we're holding an infant that's crying. What are we doing? We're holding them close to our bodies we're breathing with them. We're doing that shh, 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 shh. We're rocking. We're padding. That's co-regulation. We are connected to them. And because we are calm, they can lean into the calmness. You know, after we're meeting those needs and they can lean into that calmness and be regulated with us. And as children get older, so then imagine a toddler. So when a toddler has their ice cream and they just lick it and it falls onto the ground and they immediately leave the window. <gasps> my ice cream. Oh my goodness. You know, and they're just losing their little minds. And then we try and engage, they're in hyper arousal in that fight flight. And then we try and engage their thinking brain. I'll just give you another ice cream. Why are you crying? This is not a big deal. Look, here's another ice cream, <gasps> but I don't have my ice cream. You know, it's like this, it doesn't make sense anymore. And so that's when we have to notice okay they're in hyper arousal the logic isn't working so that's when get on your knees on their level open your arms pull them close it's okay this is hard oh my gosh you're so sad about your ice cream and so they can calm down because you are calm and you're inviting them into that regulated space and once they join you there then you can say hey do you want to get another ice cream okay right and then we can like move forward. So really co-regulation is just responding to the needs of our children by being safe, wise, and showing that we have the power to keep our children safe and make wise choices on their behalf um, and that we're kind. 
So on Carissa's website, she has a couple graphics, infographics that you could even show your kids to help them understand how they're wired in this way. And definitely go back and listen to the episodes I did with her on play and also on tweens in our ages and stages series. Such a fan of Carissa. She is in that little life team I meet with once a month. Such a gift to me. All right, last but certainly not least, uh, very memorable conversations I have had, and this is one of uh, the four I had, with Paul David Tripp. He is a pastor. He's an author. This was super intimidating, but what he shared was, again, a transformational conversation. And even listening to it again, I was like, man, okay, I need this to sink in somehow. So here is episode 176 on Gospel Parenting with Paul David Tripp. Grace-driven parenting is never permissive. Right. If you think that grace is permissive, you just need to read your Bible. Exactly. If grace never calls right wrong, if Mm. right were wrong, there'd be no need for grace. The assumption of grace is that wrong is wrong, and that's why grace is needed. So uh, it always concerns me that when I talk about grace in parenting, parents think, I mean, permissive parenting. Mm-hmm. Here, here's, here's what I think is important to understand, that your children need law in their lives. Law has a good function. Law does a great job in exposing sin. Law is a wonderful, God's law is a wonderful guide for your living. But what's important to understand for parents is the law has no capacity whatsoever to rescue and transform your children. Mm. None. Yeah. But all your children needed was a neat set of rules and regulations properly enforced. Jesus would have never had to come. Yeah. The coming of Christ tells us that something more is needed. So grace is a way of dealing with wrong. Mm -hmm. It's not turning your back on wrong. That as they talked to me, I could tell what they were doing. They were discouraged and overwhelmed and disappointed, exhausted. And one of the reasons they were is because they were loading the entire burden of the welfare of their children on their shoulders. Mm -hmm. And saying, if I don't do X, Y, and Z, my children are cooked. Well, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of your role as a parent uh, because no parent has any ability to change their children. Zip, none, nada. Mm -hmm. Again, if a human being could change another human being, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. So my role is never anything more than being a tool in the hands of the one who can change my children. Mm. That's my, that's my job. And so it is my savior that bears the burden of the spiritual welfare of my children. I have to load that on my shoulders and he is in me and he is for me and he is with me. And it's so important to understand that. But one of the sad realities of the church is every year, Thousands of supposedly Christian young people go off to residential universities and forsake the faith. I would say to you that they haven't forsaken the faith. They never had it in the first place. Yeah, wow. It was the faith of their parents. They lived under a, a system of behavioral control, but their hearts were never changed. 
And if their hearts aren't changed, then what, what gets revealed later on in university is the true condition of that child's heart. But what he's saying is it's only when the heart changes that the behavior will change in a lasting way. Yeah. So I'm meant to be God's tool. These, these terms are very important of heart exposure and heart transformation tool. Hmm. I can't create that exposure. I can't create that transformation, but I'm looking for opportunities to be God's tool on site to do that. So I give parents out there something very practical. This will take a second, okay? but uh, I want to give you a series of five heart revealing questions you can use with a three-year-old and you can use with a 25-year-old. Fabulous. The first question, just what was going on? Just, just get a telling of the situation. Don't worry about whether the child can tell you that extensively or not. Just find out what was going on. The second question, listen to the second question. What were you thinking and feeling as, as it was happening? Ask the child to look at their heart. What did that make you think? What did that make you feel? A three-year-old can answer that question. The reason that's the second question, the teacher's child that his heart is always active. I can't, I can't have that conversation, but I'm, getting, I'm teaching the child to think in that direction. Third question, what did you do in response? Now, the reason that's the third question, not the second question, I, I'm teaching the child that their response is not caused by the situation, but caused by the way their heart interacted with the situation. Mm. We can't have that conversation yet, but I'm predisposing this little one to think that way. Yeah. Notice the fourth question. Why did you do it? An older child, I would say, what you're seeking to accomplish. Uh, I'm getting them to think about motives. And then fifth question, what was the result? Consequences. Those are very, very simple questions. Here's, here's what I want to say to parents that, that I think will be helpful. If your eyes ever see or your ears ever hear the sin, weakness, and failure of your children, it's never an interruption. It's never a hassle. It's never a bad moment. It's always grace. God loves that child. He's put him in a family of faith, and he will expose the need of that child to you so you can be a tool of his rescue and transformation. Mm. That's parenting. I mean, he doesn't mince words, and he's right on so many counts. Uh, I did try the questions with my teenager who was joking, fighting with my 11-year-old and uh, didn't go over as well. I mean, take them with a grain of salt and grace, y'all. But listening to all of his episodes, if you never have, may be a great next step for you. And they can be part of your memorable episodes. I'd love to hear if you want to tag me this week in your most memorable episodes as we count down to the 10-year mark. This Friday, I will be back with a special episode where Cynthia surprised me with all kinds of goodness in our special sidetracked by this podversary. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that we are on a journey with you. And yes, there are 
famous authors and speakers who bring wisdom and insight into our lives and they're memorable. But I also know that over and over and over again, I've had conversations, not even on the podcast, just in real life, that were influential in your voice and your teaching and training of my heart, Lord. And I thank you for your kindness and goodness in my growing journey uh, to grow closer to you and more dependent on you. And when it comes to our kids, again, I just pray that we would surrender them to you, that we would recognize our part as a tool in your hand, that you are the only one who can create lasting change. And I pray that um, we would meet them there at the foot of the cross, that we would recognize our common need for you, Lord. And I just thank you for your presence in our life, that we are never alone because you are with us. In Jesus' name, and thank you for 10 years, Lord. Oh my goodness, that I could do this on a weekly basis and that you would you would invite me into that and that this is an assignment that you've given me is such a humbling thing. So thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, y'all, if you've never done it, one gift you could give me on my 10-year anniversary is to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast and uh, positive reviews only, I'd prefer. And then another thing, if you don't get my weekly notes, I send out on Tuesdays. I'm always sending out recipes I love or things I've ordered on Amazon usually or a little encouraging word in that week's episode. So uh, you just sign up for that at olaheather.com and I will connect with you that way. All right. See you here on Friday with a special sidetrack with Cynthia Yana. Adios. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Don't Mom Alone podcast. If you're wanting to connect with more people and more resources to help remind you that you're not alone, head over to don'tmomalone.com. That's where you'll also find show notes with any links mentioned by our guests. Most importantly, I want you to know the good news, the great news that you're not alone because God has promised to always be with you. With faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for you and rose again, Jesus said when he left, he was going to leave a helper, a comforter to be with us. God in us. Moms, that's superpower. So while you're washing dishes at your kitchen sink, while you're driving to and from work, while you're feeding that baby late into the night, while you're cleaning sticky floors, God promises to be just as present with you as when you're worshiping in a church pew. As it says in Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Now that's good news. Have a great day. I came from a low income family that was, that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GCE became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose.